Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Helen. And this is a Squiggly Careers podcast, where every week we talk about a different topic to do with work, and we hope give you, and definitely always us, some ideas for action and tools to try out that we hope will just help you to navigate all of the squiggles of 2023 and beyond with a bit more confidence, clarity and control. And one thing, in addition to the podcast that we think might help you, is our new Squiggly Career calendar. Drum roll, insert... <laughs> Obviously, well practiced, everybody. <laughs> um, so, so slick as ever, as slick as we're starting the year as we mean to go on, super slick, squiggly but not so slick. Um, no, so this calendar, we did our first calendar last year, and basically, it's twelve months of ideas for action to support you and your career development, and we got a really positive response to it. So, when we were thinking about how could we improve it this year, one of the things that we recognised is that often making time to take action is one of the biggest barriers for people and their development. So we've tried to make the 2023 Squiggly Career calendar even easier for you to take action with. So as well as the 12 different ideas, one for each month, we've included a button on each month where you can just click it and it will add the action to your diary. Because we know if it's in your diary, it's just much more likely to get done. And there are sort of buttons throughout but you can choose whether you want to add the whole calendar to your diary in one go so for the rest of the year every Monday there'll be an idea for action that you can take and it's like 10 minutes for you to do or if you think do you know what August is a month I'd quite like to focus on my holidays and not my career you can just pick the months that feel most relevant to you so whatever works we'll put the links for you in the show notes it will be on our website and you'll also be able to find it at Amazing If on LinkedIn or on Instagram as well. I did it this morning, Helen. You'd be proud of me. I, I tried the functionality. That sounds like I've not been involved with it so far. I did, I did, I did help. I did help along the way. But Helen definitely created the very cool and useful tech that sits behind it. So Helen, I put some of your whizzy tech to the test this morning. You'll be pleased to know. And in January, our focus is on feedback, and the idea for action is called Frequency Finder. And it was super easy. It's like if I can do it without having to WhatsApp Helen with a few questions, I promise you. Literally, click on the button. It shows you your calendar. I picked my Outlook calendar, which is what we use, and it was there straight away, just like any other diary or calendar invite. So this is a bit of an experiment for us because we are so keen to think about ideas and experiments that can help everybody make development part of your day-to-day rather than something separate or something you never quite get round to. And so 
our calendar is our sort of first way of experimenting with how can we design things slightly differently so if you do have a go if you have a chance to read it if you're adding it maybe as a team or if you're just doing it for yourself please get in touch with us and let us know um, how could we make it more useful what's been great about it are there any topics you'd like us to cover that we've missed out this year that we can do for next year we'd love to know what you all think So over the next four weeks, we are doing a soft skills series where we have looked at the World Economic Forum's recommendations for the skills that we all need by 2025. And we've decided to dive a bit deeper into them. And Sarah and I have done a review of two books on that topic, similar to something we did in summer last year that we got some good feedback on and just sort of evaluated what we've learned about it, what action might we take forward on it, what what sort of insights have we got that we didn't have before reading. So we're trying to make it as practical as possible for you so that you can develop these soft skills that we will need but it's also it's definitely useful for us we've got loads of insights ourselves from really focusing on reading around these areas so what are our areas so the four we've chosen are originality which is what we're going to talk about today critical thinking social influence and stress tolerance so there are a list of 10 and we'll make sure that that link from the world economic forum is in the show notes from today if you want to look at all 10 i'm not sure if you're allowed to say this about the world economic forum but i feel like they do cheat a little bit because some of the list of the 10 they just put two or three together yeah creativity (laughs) and and problem solving and you're like that's two come on that's two (laughs) so i feel like really it's a longer list than 10 and it is certainly quite an eclectic mix so some of them are more sort of techie type skills and then some of them are more things like originality so what we've tried to do is pick things that perhaps we've not talked about loads before that are either new to us or things that we also hope are going to be universally useful so we hope that these four all four of them whatever job you're in whatever role whatever stage of your squiggle you're at we felt like these four should feel relevant for all of us And the structure for all these episodes is we're going to talk about a quote that has sort of really stood out for us. Then we're going to talk about three things that we've learnt from reading. Then we'll move on to one idea we're definitely going to action. And then our final point we're going to do is who would we recommend reading these books to? So for originality, the book I've read is called Corporate Rebels, Make Work More Fun by Juiced Minar and Pim Damori. I apologise in advance if I've not quite pronounced those correctly. Brilliant book, and I'm really excited to talk to you all about it today. Helen, what have you chosen? I unoriginally chose a book about originality called Originals, which is by Adam Grant, and just gives me any excuse to read a book about that Adam Grant has written, which I will always want to do. So should we start with our quotes? What was one of the quote that stood out for you from the book? Here's mine. Originality is not a fixed trait. It is a free choice. Oh, really? Adam Grant. I know, he nails the quotes. He's so quotable. (laughs) He's so quotable, isn't he? But I like it because we often talk about skills or things that you you can develop in. So something like confidence, for example, a lot of people make the assumption that it's something you've got or you've not. And, you know, that's why it's one of our squiggly skills is what we say, no, it's something that you can learn. And I think that's exactly what he's trying to get across with this point of originality that some people think, you know, that's just a naturally kind of original person. They're just good at that. And I'm not. And he's saying, no, it's, it's a choice you make. And there's lots of insight into how you can develop it once you made that choice and my quote is action is the most powerful antidote to the corporate disease of analysis paralysis ah, corporate <laughs> disease <laughs> <laughs> i think that's fair that sort of sets the tone in some ways to what corporate rebels is all about and, and i wouldn't want you to think it is a negative book because actually it's it's the exact opposite it's a very 
optimistic and positive read. It's like it's something I, I really enjoyed reading over Christmas. But that quote just did really stand out for me, especially because I think I recognised from having worked in lots of big companies that analysis paralysis, you know, where structures get in your way, where things are done in a way because they've always been done that way. You know, lots of things that it's sort of no one individual's fault. It's sort of structures and systems that don't really serve us anymore. And that quote just really kind of summed up for me sort of the, if you don't take action, nothing will change. And I think whether you apply that to corporate environments or whether you apply that to your own career, I see that that continues to be true in every part of your life. Like nothing changes if you don't do something. I'm looking forward to learning more about this book. It's not a book I've I've read. Okay, so my three things that I learned from originals, I've got a definition, which I think is quite useful, like in terms of originality. That, um, of course you have. <laughs> of course, I've got a lovely definition to start things off. And then I've got, um, but the other things that I learned were some factors that make you original and then what threatens originality. So they're my three things that I will go through. So the definition, first of all, is Adam Grant's definition. And as we said, I think he just does a definition well. So the definition from Adam Grant is that originality is about introducing and advancing an idea that's relatively unusual within a particular domain and that has the potential to improve it. So it's like these these got three points to it. So it's it's something new that doesn't have to be like brand new. It's just a bit unusual in its domain. So it could be, you could be stealing an idea from a completely different area and bringing it into your like industry. It's just a sort of new to you really. And that there's an opportunity to make it a bit better. And the reason that I like that definition was he talks quite a lot about this doesn't have to be a completely blank sheet of paper. It could be that idea of borrowing an idea or building on something from a different area. That's still being original. And you almost take the pressure off originality when you look at it from that perspective. So that was the first thing that I learned, which I thought was useful. The second was what makes you original. And I don't think there's any big surprises here, but in the book, there are some really good examples. So the things that I picked out, and then I'll talk about them a little bit more, are what makes you original are taking initiative, being curious, taking considered risk and experimentation. So those four areas. And in the book, just a few of the things that stuck out for me. On initiative, Adam Grant gives this example of um, people in call centres who had higher performance in their roles for being original. So in like how they solved customer problems, for example. When they did some research into well, what makes some people better at going like off script and helping people and solving problems in new ways. One of the things that they found was the people that were the most original in terms of how they helped customers applied for their job on the internet browser, bear with me, using Firefox or Chrome, okay? And the people that were less original basically used Internet Explorer or Safari. And they deduced that basically, if you had taken the effort to use an internet browser that wasn't the one that was automatically installed on your computer, if you'd basically gone, oh, that would work better for me, I've I've been bothered to try a better solution, that was an indicator of initiative. And people who had higher levels of initiative were more original in terms of how they solved problems and generated ideas, which I thought was quite interesting when you're when you're looking at hiring and stuff like that curiosity really interesting point that i loved he said that we are driven to question defaults when we experience vuja day which is the opposite of deja vu so deja vu is obviously when you feel like you've experienced something before but vuja day is when you look at something 
that you have done before with a fresh perspective. So you say, okay, well, you know, how could we do this differently? What what would a different frame? So I thought that was that was quite interesting. And then just the last point of experimentation. He said that the more experiments you run, the less constrained you become by your ideas from the past. When you experiment, you kind of let go of this idea of it always being right and always doing the same thing. What What do you think? Do you think that's a good definition of originality? Yeah, and I think that there was two things that kind of sprung to mind there. One was creating the conditions for originality. You can already start to see the benefits of like why you want people to be more original in organisations because the whole what got us here as an organization won't get us there like you need people to spot opportunities solve problems in new ways that's how we as individuals add value to organizations so you can see how much value originality must contribute to organizations and then i suppose i'm i'm connecting the dots then to the book that i read which was more about culture and then kind of going actually corporate rebels describes i think the sorts of cultures where you would get lots and lots of originals, if you want to kind of call them that, as like a group of people in terms of a, it's more of a, I suppose, a mindset and a mode of approaching work and the way that you do things. So I was like, oh, there's also, there's almost a bit about what you bring as an individual, but also the environment you surround yourself in must help you or hinder you, I'm guessing. Yeah, and there's actually, as well as the examples that are throughout the book, right at the end of the book, there are some, there's a really good couple of pages on actions and some of it is like, as a leader, how do you create the conditions for originality, mm. which which may which may link to the bit that you've read. The last thing that I've learned that I kind of captured for this was the things that threaten originality. So that, I guess counterculture things that you could have in an organisation or a team. This one was interesting. So there are three things, achievement, idea selection and middle status conformity. So let me go through those. I thought achievement was interesting because it's one of our values. Both of us have got well, this one. It's both our, it's our <laughs> most significant value for both of us. So I was like, this sounds like bad news. This is bad, bad news. <laughs> so um, I've, I've copied and pasted this in the book. It says, when, <laughs> uh, when achievement motivation goes sky high, it can crowd out originality. The more you value achievement, the more you come to dread failure. And I was like thinking, oh, I don't know if we dread failure. And I think we learn quickly but I think it's that idea that maybe the more focused you become on achievement the less open you are to experimentation so as long as you can balance those two things I think it's probably okay but if this need to achieve comes at the cost of doing things differently that you've not done before because you fear you might fail I think that's where it creates an issue and as you were describing that I think I particularly recognized that in the first 10 years of my career where yeah, I don't think I was experimenting much. I think I did have a high fear of failure. And because I'm achievement focused, that probably got in the way of me being as original as I can be. Because I can think of lots of examples now where I think that's me at my best, you know, being curious and experimenting and developing, you know, different ways of approaching things. I think I'm good at asking those kind of questions now. But I wonder if it also takes a certain amount of confidence, you know, in sort of like knowing being prepared to be original often means like doing something differently you know or suggesting something different and I, I'd be interested in the link between how confident or like how much self-belief you need to then also be is you know is that a condition for originality like if you're not if you're not feeling confident I think it's a, all those things you've described are a really hard thing to do whereas if you're feeling if you've got good levels of self-awareness and you're confident in yourself which is I think how I would describe myself in probably the second 10-15 years of my career that was probably one of the biggest differences 
then I, I would say my levels of originality like, intuitively feel way higher. Well, he talks about this idea. So one of the other threats was middle status conformity. So this is basically where conformity chooses people to pick sort of tried and tested over the danger of the original is what he says. And Ah. if you think about it in terms of career stage, he said that at the start of people's careers, they're sort of in some ways got nothing to lose because they've not done it before. So they can do, do different things. And later on in people's careers, because they've maybe got kind of tenure or they've got a network, they've got experience. Well, he, he says actually, no, he says it's the middle bit that's the worst. So they've almost got more confidence to your point. You've got more confidence in your later career that you can recover that even if it goes wrong it's not the end of the world that actually you know you fail you learn all that stuff he says you know that when you're a bit more tenured and at the start of your career you sort of you you don't know it and you just do it he says this middle status conformity is the biggest threat to originality because you're trying to play it safe there's the pressure of progression people are trying to maybe fit a mold a little bit more so it'd be interesting the corporate rebels like how does that link with this middle status conformity how do you help those people to be more rebellious because adam's saying that that stage in your career when you're in this middle layer is the hardest point to do it. I also wonder in that middle stage whether you see them as in your control or not, but a lot more, maybe like ob- obligations might not be the right word, but you know where you've kind of, maybe you've got kids, you've probably got high rent or mortgages, you've got quite a lot of costs, you've maybe got older, you know, like older parents yeah. who you may be looking after. So there's a lot of, you know, that kind of squeeze middle, that sandwich bit, the sandwich generation, as it's sometimes described. Yeah, you know, I heard a lot of people towards the end of last year, you know, when you feel like you've had the same conversation but with very different people, where people talk to me about, you know, wanting to progress, but, but felt mm. like they couldn't because they needed flexibility or they'd quite like to do something different, but they needed the money that they got from their current role. You know, all of those kind of things, which are very real challenges and perhaps that's when they happen those kind of challenges it's like it's quite hard to make a maybe to be original to make a different choice when you're like there's lots of sort of factors that perhaps feel like they're working against you yeah i do think though i don't think i don't think i was very original in my early career i don't i actually think quite quickly maybe because we were both in big organizations but i think i conformed very quickly and didn't you know almost felt like i was like no way do i want to fail you know almost like, like that pressure of starting out so I I didn't recognize the first bit I maybe I'd be different now maybe people starting in work are different now but I think I was very conformist early on and got less and less so the older I got um the last thing then uh just on there what threatens originality idea selection so I thought this was interesting the biggest barrier to originality is not idea generation it's idea selection and he does go on to talk about how important it is to have a volume of ideas but the idea that it's not just having lots of ideas, it's picking the ones that are right for that team right now. And this ability to be able to sift through ideas to find the right ones is, he said, what is really critical. Otherwise, you've just got loads of ideas. And he says that sometimes people fall in love with their ideas and they it might not be a good one, but it's just that. Or, or you fall in love with someone else's idea because they're particularly persuasive but it doesn't mean that, you know, it's a good idea. It's just they've sold it in a very compelling way, which I thought was quite interesting. And what does he say in terms of, like, what helps to improve idea selection? Is it connecting it to company purpose and objectives? I'm going to tease you, Sarah, because that's, that's my action oh, to take okay. forward. So oh, okay. I'm glad I've hooked you. I'm glad I've hooked yes, you with you that have, question. Yes, you have, Because I was thinking... <laughs> I, I, as you were describing, I was like, right, I'm definitely good at generating ideas. But then I was, I was sort of challenging myself, like, am I quite as good at 
selecting the right ones. I don't well, know. Well, you'll have to wait for we'll, the I'll idea, idea action. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Right, help me understand about corporate rebels. What do I need to learn? So I think one of the things that is really good about corporate rebels that's really compelling when you read it is the range of organisations they visited. So early on in the book, they basically, these two guys sat down and made a really long list of people and organisations that they saw as pioneers, as corporate rebels. And they are from all over the world, some of them are more sort of individuals, so it might be an incredible thinker. And some of them are really traditional manufacturing organisations that have been around for 100 years that are making fridges or civil servants. And so, you know, sometimes, particularly when you read about Juiced and Pim, who both sound lovely and brilliant and drive around in a camper van and clearly like going surfing. And so, you know, when you're like, oh, they've just gone and spoken. Yeah, I think so. From from what I can, like, I'd actually, I'd love to talk to them. I'm, I think they would be great podcast guests. Yeah, so they've like they've physically been and talked and visited all of these companies that they've that they then in their camper van. The can they did they rock up yeah. at the fridge maker? I'm not sure they did them all in the camper van. To be fair, but I think <laughs> they definitely did some of them in in what's and they obviously like surfing and things. And so I, you know, when you the slight cynic in me, I was like, oh, have they just been to all these companies where it'll feel very hard if you are. 150 years old or if you're a bank is this going to feel really difficult to do anything with but I would say the exact opposite is true because they use such a wide variety of examples and they are very clear kind of the first point I learned is you know it's always really tempting to look for a well if I do this then all like good stuff will happen they are very clear about you know there is no there's no playbook there's no one size fits all But what all of these organisations do have in common is that success belongs to the fast learner. These organisations are just incredibly good. And, you know, these are individuals within these organisations at challenging the status quo and continually adapting. Their ability to sort of unlearn and, and relearn is so it's really motivating to read, especially because 
you know, some of these organisations have been around for so long or or done things in a certain way. And so it feels like, you know, nothing is off limits. They are really prepared to, rather than saying, we can't do this because, you feel like what they all have in common is, well, imagine if we did it this way. Or like, what would happen if? And they sort of embrace the uncomfortableness and the challenge that comes with making those changes. Because when you read about it, you know, some of these changes that um, some of the organisations, let's say they've gone from hierarchical to self-managing teams, which is one of the examples, you know, those things don't happen overnight, especially not in big companies or like the civil servants that they describe where they completely changed the culture. It took three years. And so, you know, the continue, and I know, and we both know, haven't been in big companies, the continual commitment to doing things in a different way. It's not like a flash in the pan initiative. It's not the latest like shiny object in an organization. This is people really believing that there is a a better way to be and not sort of being committed to the the structures and systems that have often been in place for like for a really, really long time. So I think that was sort of the, the first thing I learned was how easy it is to fall into the trap of working in a certain way because it's what you assume is the right thing to do. And I even recognize that in Amazing If where I'm like, we are a very small organization compared to some of the people I was reading about. And there were some things that I found quite confronting where I was like, crikey, we already do that. And we're, you know, we've got less than 10 people. And I was like, why do we do that? And we've sometimes I think it's just you haven't thought about it. It really made me think, well, it's just we just didn't ask that question. We just assumed that's the right structure or that's the right approach. And so it makes you, as you go through, you ask yourself a lot of questions about, are we fit for purpose as an organisation for the future? Oh, oh, have we really thought about, are we kind of creating value in the right way? So that's a sort of more general point. You get all these really interesting case studies, but they're not too long. They're really digestible. They're really interesting stories. Second point to get a bit more specific is we've talked about this idea before of involve, don't solve. And you see that with these organizations. One of the things that they all consistently do well is involve employees. And so this gets rid of things like bottlenecks. And it means there's much more transparency, much more accountability. So, you know, lots of the, I think we did an episode on it last year where, you know, managers will often get quite frustrated. There's not enough accountability. And then probably what you default to as a manager or as a leader is then trying to maybe go to more top-down leadership or, you you know, you try and sort of take more control. I think that's probably what I would try and do because you know, I'd be like, okay, well, I need to get more involved or control more. Whereas actually what you see in like this civil servant organization is like do the opposite involve people get people to come up with the solutions let people self-organize be really really transparent in an almost uncomfortable way and they did find um because you know you can describe these things and you're like oh this all sounds great but in the um there's some really interesting research that they talk about when you involve people how much it affects productivity and in most cases it goes up by 30 percent as a minimum and 40% at best. And when they then describe, at the start of the book, they talk about 20% of people feel like their career is useful. You know, almost like I've got a career that is useful in some way. And it's a bit like that engagement score that you sometimes hear people are like, only 10% or 15% of people feel engaged in the work that they do. But I quite like the useful one. Like, does your career feel useful? And they were saying that when you 
involve people. People are so much more motivated and it's often harder, but the satisfaction levels from people go up so much more. So it's this idea of kind of you giving away control, particularly senior people. It's almost like levels disappear in place of very specific and transparent roles and responsibilities and therefore everything's so clear you know like the clarity there is so so much clarity and there's a lot of effort and energy put into that which you can imagine feels time consuming and lots of organizations don't do because you're like oh we'll get to it when whereas these organizations seem to understand that if we really involve people if we sort of actively embrace challenges and problems and spend time on them you know it's almost like the payoff is going to be more than worth it there's um, two overlapping um, examples, actually, in originals, which I think support that point. So one of them is the glassware company. That's what you call them. But Warby Parker, like the cool glasses by post people. And it talked about that involved in Solve. They had a very transparent way of sharing ideas. I think it was like in a Google Doc that the leaders, when the organisation was first starting, they just shared all of their ideas they're working on in a Google Doc that people could just, just build on, which I thought was quite interesting in terms of that transparency point. And then employees could upvote the ideas. So and then so they got this constant view of what ideas are they working on and what ideas do people support, which I thought was nice. And then they also um, there's another example of a project Adam Grant did with Google on job crafting, which I noted for us actually as something to kind of look back on. And they did a study with how engaged I think the metric was people were with their work. And they had a control group that just did the job that was defined by their job description and another group that had the opportunity to sort of redefine their role around things that they thought were sort of useful and relevant. And it was the people that did that that were, I think it's like they measured it six months after. I think it was impact and engagement or metrics to that extent, but were significantly higher because they'd been involved in defining the detail of their job. So really interesting examples of what happens you know how you can take that involved don't solve like with ideas and people's jobs and then the benefits and and the crossover of those two points in the books yeah job crafting also comes up Ah. and there is a great quote actually I was just looking for there by David Marquette who writes about like leadership language and comes from a I think it's Navy Navy background so again an environment where you'd have thought you can't involve people my assumption would be well you can't do that because you've got to have very strict systems but he really challenged that. And I think he was put onto some was like underperforming boats, apparently, you know, to like turn those boats around. And he's, he I says... I think they're called ships um, in the Navy. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, boat, boat, ships, you know, potato, potato. Uh, and he says, I'm not going to give any more orders because when I give an order, you follow it. And if I give the wrong order, we're all going to die. And he's sort of very clear about well, the people who sort of know best are the people who are closest to like the engine in the engine room or the, I don't know, steering in the steering wheel room. <laughs> <laughs> to use another technical phrase there. Um, the steering I wheel it. room, I love it. I know. I, mean, I, know. I don't know of a better room to call it. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it is interesting. You know, you know that sort of, I imagine the challenge back from a lot of CEOs would be like, oh, that's all well and good, but it's not going to work here. And I think if you could... And we'll come on to like who should read this book. But certainly that challenge is really overcome with the with the range of examples, which I found really interesting. And then the third thing I learned, which is kind of I was zooming in and getting more specific as I was going through, is this process called the advice process, which I'd not heard of before. So in organizations, 
decisions tend to be made in one of two ways. So lots of organizations get top-down decision-making. In some organizations, people sort of recognize, okay, well, maybe that's not the way to go. And people go for consensus decision-making. But the problem with that is that's really time-consuming, can slow people down. You know, like you feel like you have to involve everyone. And actually, I've been in both of those types of organizations. And usually, it's quite nice to work in a consensus sort of seeking environment because, you know, you're trying to include people. So I think often comes from positive intent, but it does mean that you can be quite slow and that you miss opportunities and what they talk about with pioneers and kind of progressives as they kind of label these organizations is they often use some form of what's called an advice process so this means that for decisions as an individual if you've got a small decision to make you just make it just get on with it if you've got a medium or big decision to make you go and seek advice from sort of two sets of people people who are going to be affected so I'm going to make a decision about something you're going to be affected so I should seek advice from you and maybe I go and seek advice from Vivian our team because she's got relevant experience so she's maybe not going to be effective but I I think oh I think Vivi did something a bit like this before in her previous organization so I'm going to go and kind of learn from her and almost get a bit of challenge and build from her to influence and to affect my decision but ultimately that advice that you've been given, they say advice is just advice. It's essentially sort of your gleaning perspectives, which you consider, but ultimately it is still your decision. So I could choose to think, I know you're going to be affected and you've told me this is how it's going to affect you. And that might not be your choice, but I might go, well, I think that's an acceptable risk. I think I think that's okay. So I know you're not going to be happy, but I have I have talked to you and I can also explain it to you, but it doesn't mean I have to, I don't have to follow everybody's advice. And one of the things that they were saying about this is it really increases initiative and accountability because it is very clear who the decision maker is. And it reminded me a bit of when you spoke last year to um, someone else who I hope we got on the podcast this year called Rob Pierre, who runs a company called Jellyfish, where he talked a lot about knowing, you know, who's responsible, who's accountable, who can make which decisions. And so again, it's back to this kind of clarity point about going, how do we, you know, like how do we get stuff done? Now, in our kind of organisation, when you are a bit smaller, I think this perhaps feels a little bit less relevant. But you could, we could definitely fall into consensus seeking decision making, where you sort of feel like you have to involve everyone because we want to be, you know, nice and friendly. But if you're in a really big organisation, or even sort of, they said it's something like the tipping point is quite small, over fifteen people you know, where you end up adding unnecessary structures and involving too many people. That's when it sort of cuts out, you know, meeting for meeting sake and steering groups and working groups that like no one really needs to be in. And it just gives you a lot more, gives people a lot more sense of ownership over their role and their ability to like make stuff happen. And what's interesting is they said when people first start doing this, most people especially if you've been in a more command and control or top-down environment, find it really hard because you've moved from, well, I just did whatever Helen told me to do to, oh, I have to figure out what I think we should do. And so they were saying, actually, people initially do need quite a lot of coaching because you've got to have, you know, back to confidence, you've got to have the confidence. You might feel quite scared. You might feel, you know, like uh, Amy Edmondson talks about fear. You might feel quite fearful of being like, oh, but if I'm now very clearly owning this decision what happens if it doesn't go well like what are the consequences of that decision not going well now that it's very clearly my decision 
does that mean I'm not going to get a very good review or bonus or those kind of things? So they were saying, actually, it's quite, um, depending on where you're starting from, it can feel like quite a tough transition. But I found that just really interesting as a, it's something I'd not heard of. They sort of describe how it works and then they give a few resources um, if you wanted to find out more. So that, that felt like something to dig a bit deeper into because I just thought it was, it was kind of new news to me. So what it makes me think as a small organisation is that the affected by a decision, I feel like we we would know, but the experienced in, that might prompt me to look outside the organisation because because mm. we're a relatively new business and we're certainly doing a lot of things, even though we've been around for like 10 years now, Sarah, and we're still doing a lot of things that we've never done before. So we might not have experience of that thing in our organisation. It's definitely just a, a sort of a pause point, isn't it, when you're making a decision, thinking about who do we know who's got experience of this that we could talk to before we make this decision? I think it's just a nice prompt. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good prompt. And actually, I think we have done that in an ad hoc way. I think the thing that you realise about these progressive pioneers is they definitely experiment everything they do is is quite thoughtful and intentional so (laughs) I think it's fair to say that occasionally between you and I we're a bit sort of um we try this one thing but then we don't write it down and then we do something slightly different we're never sort of short of an idea or an experiment we're always quite open to change and challenge but you know the sort of the the intentional aspect almost like the kind of slowing down to speed up and going right how do we approach this it's all very transparent. You you kind of have clearly articulated everything. I think you and I often get so either excited or we like to move with pace. You miss that out. And actually by missing that out, you probably miss out on some of the, what they would argue, some of the benefits, some of the outcomes. You probably don't stick with some stuff for long enough. You probably don't have a good enough idea about what's working, what's not. Like you say, you could forget. Actually, it's the repeatability because for lots of these organisations, like I said, they stick with this for years and years and years while still learning really fast, but they sort of know where they are. And I think that's often one of the things that you and I struggle with is we, because we're not very good kind of at capturing as we go, you then sort of don't know where you are at any mm. one point. And then you can actually waste time and effort because you have to repeat, which you never want to, you never want to do. So we're going to move on to the action bit now. And the idea here is that if you want to you know, increase your originality in the work that you do or the team that you work in, what is one thing that you can take away from, from these books? And so the idea that I think you could try out from originals is all about idea selection. And this goes on to that point that I mentioned earlier that the issue with originality isn't the amount of ideas you have. It's selecting like the right ideas. And I thought this is something that we could experiment with and that listeners could try out too. So Adam Grant, says that very often when people are selecting ideas what you do is you have a whole load of ideas so like what's a new product we could launch and everyone generates loads of ideas and then you go okay what's our you know criteria to review these ideas like it's got to be delivered by December it's got to cost under this much money all that kind of jazz and then you review the ideas and he says but what that makes you do is you're almost like too critical you because you've got an idea criteria review you've got this very critical mindset that goes against sort of the creativity and the originality. And so he says that a better way of doing this, if you want to improve your idea selection for ideas that are likely to be more original, is you do the criteria first. So, okay, well, for this product we're gonna launch, what does it need to do? One, two, three, four, five. Then you get everyone in sort of creative original thinking mode. All right, what are all of our ideas? What are we thinking? And then you do the review because he says you're more likely to build on each other's ideas because your brain has stayed in that 
idea-y open space there's much more like challenge build that original sort of mindset is much more present so I thought it was a really simple change to how you could select better ideas you do the criteria for what it needs to be then you get into idea generation mode and then you do the review interesting I'm gonna need to read this. I'm gonna need to. I'm gonna need to. The reason I say interesting, and actually, you said to me before we even start this podcast, you were like, "You need to read this book," and I was like, "And actually, you and I have both bought the book, but you decided to read it." So I was like, "Well, I won't," because I think I quite like the surprise of these conversations. Yeah. Uh, and I was reading something different. Uh, what I was trying to reconcile with there when you described that is, I feel like lots of my ideas come out of the blue. But I hope they don't. They sort of come from connecting dots or not from a kind of criteria. So as you, I was almost falling into fixed mindset as you were describing that. I was like, I don't want somebody to give me a criteria. No, I don't think you say, I think he's saying a criteria, then almost separate it. Like, oh, there's the criteria, but not use that to then define the ideas. But you've got the criteria. Then you get the ideas, you stay in a free headspace. Right. And then you, then, then you connect the two at the end of it. But because when you are trying to select the ideas, you're still in a more creative space. You're not being reductive. Yeah. Whereas he's basically saying, if you start with ideas and then go criteria, then, you become gradually more reductive in the outcomes. Yeah, I think the point around the, what mindset are you in when you're making those decisions? That makes makes a lot of sense. Hmm, in- so interesting. So for me, from Corporate Rebels, like what's the one idea for action if you want to increase your originality? I'd almost be coupling two things together. I would be looking at either my job or my team or my organization, depends which lens feels most motivating for you, and asking myself, what is a system or a structure or a process that that we should challenge that doesn't feel fit for purpose anymore? And I'd almost be, and nothing is off limits, be really ambitious about what that might be. And then I would be thinking about, well, who can I involve to, as Helen's described, maybe create ideas about what we could do differently and don't start from where you are. I think this is on a blank piece of paper, create without any limitations, without any constraints, what could this be? So if you were going to get rid of hierarchy, if you were going to have full transparency in your team, if you were going to completely change how you made decisions, like almost like you sort of need a propelling question, I think, to start, then involve people, and then just think about how can you experiment even on a small scale? Because I I wonder whether the, I think maybe the only downside of reading Corporate Rebels is these organisations are so ambitious. I found it really motivating to read, but I'm reading it in the position where you know, I'm the co-founder of a company where I probably feel like I've got a lot of power and autonomy. I'm imagining if I had been reading it back in my Barclays or my Sainsbury's days, I might have been like, oh, well, I'm not the CEO of this brilliant Chinese company or I'm not at Harvard doing interesting, innovative work on management thinking. But again, I think that almost is doing ourselves a disservice about how original you can be sort of within your own context and within your own world. So I think it's, if you read this book, if you read Corporate Rebels, I think you will feel like, well, originality has a really strong business case for making a positive difference to people, purpose and profit. And I think that's really, that comes through really clearly. But I wouldn't want people to think, oh, but I can't influence or impact that because I'm not sort of senior enough because change comes from people. Back to where we started, change comes from action. And I think we all have the ability to 
be more original kind of within our own worlds. And the best thing you can do, I think, is to just choose something that would benefit. What would benefit from your originality? And I can see like what would benefit from my originality in Amazing If. But I think when I think back to other jobs I've done, I can see there how things would have benefited from me having a bit more confidence to be more original. So I think it's maybe connecting that, that dots is... You know, if you just say, I want to be more original, I think that feels too vague and abstract. It's like, who, what or where would benefit from your originality? And then it gives you um, somewhere to apply. You've got to apply your originality to be able to take action, to be able to practice and to get better at it. So I would encourage everyone listening to be really specific about answering that question. Like, who, what or where would benefit from your originality? I think that is the the dream coach yourself question that's come from this conversation yeah. and we will include it in the pod sheet. So for all of our episodes, we do a pod sheet that you can download that covers a lot of the key points, the ideas for action, and it has these coach yourself questions to really prompt your reflection. You can get the link to that in the show notes or it's, it's always on our website. So yeah, I, I like that. It's, made, it's definitely made me think. So last but not least, who would you recommend it for? Mine's really easy. I feel like you could, I could just go everyone, but to be a bit more specific, I would say originals is my recommended read to anyone who's interested in newness like maybe you're working like innovation or problem solving which I feel is like most people or creativity or like creative team cultures so it doesn't have to be marketing but I would say like innovation problem solving marketing would be the first people that I would go to to recommend this book to I would love every CEO to have read this book I think the world would be a better place if every CEO had read this book and if you're interested in culture, in like how things get done in organisations, I think if you're interested in challenging the status quo, in doing things differently, if you find that fascinating and you want lots of examples of people and places that have done that, I think you'll really enjoy Corporate Rebels. I don't always enjoy a non-fiction read. I read a lot of fiction. And this was a book that I was I kept looking forward to picking back up again. And for people who listen to our summer series, I'm usually quite honest about whether I've uh, enjoyed enjoyed the book or not. As infamously, there was one book I did not enjoy that much and tried to, tried to be polite-ish about it. But this was one where even some of the people who saw me over Christmas, the book was sort of following me around with like a highlight. And they were like, is it, is it, you know, that like people start to ask you that question when you're giving them the classic sort of book off. Is it, is it a good book? Is it interesting? I'm like, it is interesting. Please don't talk to me. <laughs> I love your book offs. Um, so we hope you have found today's episode useful. As we said before, it is the first of four episodes in our Squiggly Soft Skills series. The next one is on critical thinking. We won't tell you what books we've chosen, but similar structure to this. We've both read different books and we will uh, share our insights with each other and our ideas for action for you as well. So thank you so much for listening. I'll be back with you again next week. Bye for now. Bye, everyone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.